Welcome to Assembly Point, a brand new monthly podcast by the Fire Protection Association. The devastating circumstances of the Grenfell Tower tragedy brought the subject of fire safety into sharp focus. But has anything changed since that day in 2017? What is being done to ensure that everyone involved in the design, construction and management of buildings, as well as those who occupy them, understands their role in minimising the risks? Our host for the series is Howard Passy, the FPA's Director of Operations and respected fire industry professional. From legislative change, updated guidance and improving safety standards to the need for greater education and training, join us as we talk with experts and influencers from across industries to move the debate on fire safety forwards and identify ways to work together to improve standards. We hope you enjoy the episode. Hello and welcome to the FPA's Assembly Point podcast. I'm your host, Howard Passy, and today I'm delighted to be joined by Sophie Hooper, Head of Policy at the Institute of Workplace and Facilities Management. Welcome, Sophie. Many thanks for joining us today. It's a, it's a real pleasure to speak to you and, uh, and it's great to have you here for, for what is just the second of our podcasts. Um, by way of introduction and, and for the benefit of our listeners, could you start maybe by giving us a little background on the Institute and um, and what your role is there? Of course. Thank you for having me, Howard, to begin with. Um, as you said, I work for the Institute of Workplace and Facilities Management, and we are the professional body for workplace and facilities professionals. And as such, our aim is really to promote excellence amongst our community of around 14,000 worldwide. Um We were established in 2018, and some of us might actually know us as the British Institute of Facilities Management. So we do have a 25-year heritage to build on. We're not that young as we would like to be. We support really our members with their upskilling in a variety of formats so that they can have a rewarding and impactful career. And we really do this by outlining what the professional standards for Workplace NFM are. We offer guidance, training, we develop insights and we share best practice. And our vision really is to drive change for the future for the profession, which is really the segue into my role as head of policy. So I lead on the IWFM's wider policy and public affairs work, and I help to raise the voice of the Institute, its members and the profession. And while I've got quite a broad remit, it really comes down to translating best practice into policy objectives and engaging with stakeholders to ensure best practice is taken on board and really concerns affecting workplace and facilities professionals are mitigated. So that's really what my work on around life safety has been all about, about articulating what best practices for FMs um, and then making sure that we can share that idea with government to hopefully be embedded in legislation and any guidance or any competence frameworks that may follow through on that. Um, I joined BI. FM about two months before the Grenfell tragedy. So for me, really, uh, life safety has been one of my core priorities within the role since then. Sure. So it's clearly a an extensive membership um, with with fourteen thousand members, and and with them being based internationally, must also you know present a fair few challenges. I'm I'm sure. But I suppose if just to focus on your policy work to start with, um, clearly you're there to help shape the wider political and regulatory environments, as you as you just mentioned, and representing the institute and your members. But in your opinion. 
what government support is needed to help facilities managers and other responsible persons ensure effective fire safety management in the workplace? Our engagement after the Grenfell tragedy, we've really focused kind of on on four particular areas that needed addressing in our view and where the government could really make a difference. Um, and, And one is actually, the first one that we identified was actually the standard of fire risk assessments the ones that are carried out, the, the standard is often very poor and it often lacks a suitable remediate plan. Um, two, the responsible person role um, within the FCO isn't well defined and consequently the responsible person often lacks an understanding of the role as well as the importance of the fire risk assessments and how they should be followed up. And that of course reflects badly then on standards of competency and that has been enabled also by a lack of enforcement of the requirements in place. A third area that we thought was really where government needed to step it up was the fact that a building's documentation is often poor, incomplete and dispersed. It's it's You can find it about anywhere, especially with buildings that are older and have built, been built in a time where digitization of plants wasn't really there. And then the fourth point was the general lack of enforcement of compliance across the board. So these are really the areas that government can play an instrumental role in helping to define and drive standards. So that was kind of the identification back in 2017-2018. Now where we are today really um, is that we should get more clarity about those roles um, and those responsible for fire safety, uh, who it is, what their functions really are. Um, And it's not that we want to be too prescriptive about these things or or want the legislation to be too prescriptive. But we're really looking forward to the fact that the building safety manager will be a regulated role, not just because it's the first statutory role for FM, but also because it should give more certainty about who the persons responsible for fire safety, etc., are in, in residential buildings and what is expected of them. So that there is greater clarity being built into the new regime. And, and as well with the uh, FSO, that should be strengthened in that particular area. And the fact that skills, knowledge, experience and behaviours will be a regulatory requirement for building safety manager, we, we think will in turn help drive the standards on fire risk assessments because the people that will be contracted to do them, we, we should understand the competences that will be required of them and that they should be competent to do so. Um, coupled with the fact that the regulator will also, of course, check on, on some of the content of those documents. And then the requirements in the building safety bill around the safety case and the safety case report, kind of building on what I said just before, coupled with the gateway system should really drive the overall quality and availability of building information. So when the building safety manager takes over the property at handover stage, the information that they should be getting their hands on should be complete. Um, And then, of course, there's something to build on to maintain throughout the occupation phase. And then really around the enforcement and and compliance point, it's going to be up to the regulator to really demonstrate that there are consequences to non-compliance because ultimately none of the changes of the building safety regime will matter if there isn't sufficient drive around enforcement. 
Now, you, you raise a, a number of, of really interesting points there, and, and, and I wish we had hours to, you know, to consider them all. Um, I really do. But one of the points that you mentioned was, was there in talking through really the requirements for fire risk assessors and for, um, and for building safety managers was around competence. From my perspective, certainly working in the fire safety field, um, they were really brought to the fore following the fire at Lackanall House and, you know, so obviously more recently with the Grenfell Tower fire. We didn't see much change after Lackanall, but we are now seeing um, a, a, a more significant push by government to uh, and the industry to, to, to make some significant action. Looking at the draft building safety bill, um, those deemed responsible for safety of high risk buildings are going to be required to appoint a building safety manager, as, as you've just alluded to. Um, and I'm aware that the, the Institute has been helping to develop the specific competence requirements for the, um, for the building safety manager as part of their work in working group eight. What advantages do you see that um, building safety managers will bring to the overall provision of fire safety? Um, the first and obvious one is the one of having a dedicated responsible person with specific functions. So the functions that have been identified in the regime is that the building safety manager will manage the building in accordance with the safety case report. So, you know, while previously we were talking about prescriptive, non-prescriptive, um, while, while the framework is going to be much more prescriptive, obviously it's still going to be risk-based and that's going to find its way in that safety case report which will be very specific to the building so managing that building in accordance with the safety case report um, then the second one is establish and operate a mandatory occurrence reporting system I think that will be quite useful because it will enable the building safety manager to raise things that they really should be raising it, it will help them to maintain a kind of independence because the the kind of consequence of that reporting system is that they can't it can't be used against them to report things so it's really in their interest the whole point of this is that there is a no blame culture being created so that people don't feel compelled not to report things and then the their third function is implementing a resident engagement strategy and you know when i speak with members it's like all good and well putting everything in place but there is still you you deal with people and and it's their it's their home so it's something that's very precious to them so you have to really be able to to manage those situations that will no doubt be very unexpected um, but having that one person that kind of deals with that whether directly or or managing a team that they do that's really the, the the very obvious kind of key advantage. But I think it's it's more, it's it's the whole package around that. It's the requirement for competence that's built in with the building safety manager. It's it's the golden thread of information that enables them to do their job properly because you know, FMs might have very much been pointed with the finger in the past. And, and I'm, I'm not saying that, you know, everyone is displaying excellence in their profession. But if you don't have the information to act on, how are you supposed to, to manage risks when, when you can't understand them because you haven't got all the information? So um, we, we think it's, it's, 
very advantageous to have a regulatory function such as the BSM because the the regulatory functions are helpful in an area that are dominated by risk management and and focus on compliance and and in the past that's very much been proven especially where when resources and funding is kind of limited that you just do what's legally required um, because that's the benchmark so the whole hope around this new role and the systems around it is that really it it will drive best practice and not just compliance with with minimum standards. You made three points there at the start um, about the, the the various aspects of the work that the building safety manager would get involved in. Um, and putting to one side at the, just for a moment the the resident engagement element, do you think that there would be benefit in the government considering applying these changes more widely across industry and commerce rather than just for those um, high rise residential and other high risk buildings? Absolutely. We'd always hoped, actually, that this was the opportunity to kind of only have one fire safety system, one one fire safety regime so greater alignment with the FSO so that really you don't need to have those different regimes because it creates confusion and actually quite a lot of what the building safety regime is trying to achieve is is gold standard or not gold standard is best practice um so we we would absolutely advocate that in time the scope is widened because we well, we think that would be the most appropriate. Um, anecdotally, what we're seeing is that some of the bigger managing agents might just be applying this across their um, building portfolio anyway, because, well, it, it makes good sense for them to do so. So very much, yes, expansion of scope to be work uh, welcomed. At the same time, and this might sound a bit contrary we we do think it's a good idea to start small because it's quite a big overhaul of the system the regulator as well will need to get used to it um so we think it is the right approach to kind of give the system time to embed and and give the wider building arena time to adapt to what is expected yeah that that mirrors fba's view entirely um we, we would absolutely like to see a a single building safety regime across the entire industrial and commercial and resi- residential estate but in much the same way um i can definitely see your point with regard to starting small and building building forward um you know hopefully we'll see circumstances where other types of premises can be brought under the the, the, the legislation going forward. But there, there are clearly benefits to, to that kind of approach. We've been talking about the building um, the building safety manager alongside almost and, and in conjunction with the, the facilities manager's role. Um, and, and clearly it will be facilities managers that take on this responsibility going forward. But clearly they have a far wider breadth of activities that they will be responsible for within the workplace. What sort of challenges do you think that they're, they're likely to face in implementing best practice? If the change isn't required from a legal point of view, current practice of kind of only needing to comply with minimal requirements is, is probably for, for many going to be maintained. And that is because of the pressure on, on budgets 
and and resources. So you're trying to, well, not to put any puns in my mouth, but you're trying to fight fires all the time. Um, So I think that is perpetually a challenge, that if you want to really do best practice, you'd need to have the budget and the resources, wider resources in, in, in people as well to do it. But I think as well, it is the wider understanding of people of just what should be required of a role like that and, and just giving the space for people to do what they should be doing. So if, if there isn't an expectation around competence or there isn't an expectations around the quality of what should be delivered. So there, there is still an awareness raising piece to be done um, across a wide range of stakeholders about the qualities that should be expected. And when it comes to implementing best practice in residential areas, that the issue of access will remain um, because you need to be aware of all of the risks and hazards, but they're very often within the remit of a person's home. So, so getting that information and getting access to a person's home is, is still something that isn't easy. And of course, one has to balance that because it is, of course, that person's home and, and it is a balance of rights, isn't it? The, the right to a person's privacy, whereas the right to safety all over. And I, I think the other bit that will remain a challenge, and it's it's something that we've already talked about a little bit, is that regulator support around enforcement. Where mistakes are being made, if that's not acted upon, then why would you change your approach? So I can I can only see that members that of our organization, they obviously want to drive excellence. They they want to do their best possible job, but not everyone within the FM world is necessarily part of our membership. So yeah, it's 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 really achieving that no blame culture. And and that's something that is really difficult to stamp out. We see the same problems within the um within the you know the fire risk assessment field really nobody wants to own up to doing things maybe not as well as they could have done um, or to have been the cause of any fault but when it comes to a a safety related issue um, we should just be working together I suppose to you know to 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 try and make it right but uh, you know also reflecting on your point earlier about meeting those minimum legislative requirements and uh, you know being able to work beyond them um, there's something that we have, you know, campaigned for uh, for many years, which is, you know, further consideration of the the built environment from a resilience perspective, um, because, you know, prescriptively we work to standards which are there to protect life and and quite rightly um, and prevent injury. But the the outcomes of a fire can be far more wide ranging and lead to loss of business, loss of community facility, loss of schoolwork, for example. And, you know, there's a lot more there to be considered. And a lot comes down to to behaviour, people's behaviour and ethics. And I, I don't, as a professional body, we obviously advocate particular behaviours and a code of conduct, etc. But that is not something that's necessarily widely accepted. And I think Dame Judith Hackett's review and, and kind of really putting that as quite central to the culture that has kind of existed in, in the built environment is really quite 
pivotal in tackling that. I mean, people have known about that for some time, but yeah. Um, I'm just. I am just though going to take a, a slight step back to something you mentioned earlier, and 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 that was around issues of associated with competency. And I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on on, on what you think needs to be done from a, a skills and training perspective to ensure that those that are responsible for fire safety are prepared to meet the these new standards. I'm wondering whether there's a you know a pathway emerging from the, the work that you've done within Working Group Eight and within the Institute um, that will hopefully get us towards where we need to be? I think in first instance, there's still a big job to be done around awareness raising of the new standards. And I I guess the the big barrier to that is that as long as the legislation isn't out, um, people don't necessarily know where that's going to land. And that's creating a little bit of uncertainty. But, you know, thankfully, we are seeing greater awareness. We're seeing greater uptake of things like webinars, etc., that we're having. So there is greater awareness. And that's really encouraging and, and questioning around what people can do to to get to a position where they can carry out the role. But on, on the specific pathway, Obviously, the Hackett report outlined competence requirements. Well, not the exact competence requirement, but there was a demand for competence. And so uh, working group eight, which sat within the competence steering group, very much focused on outlining a competence framework for the building safety manager. And that was published in October and kind of next steps in the pathway to being able to offer something that that says to someone, oh, we you are deemed to be competent for the BSM role is is the PAS. So as a next step, the uh, WG8 report uh, or I should say the competence framework within the report is being translated into a PAS. So we're working with the BSI. A steering group is about to be called together to to really put the competence framework into a publicly available specification, which will then allow organisations to um, develop schemes against that. uh, And that's probably the pathway really that's established and the working group eight because it kind of finalized its term of reference but it's so difficult to to think of the pathway moving forward we we just continue to work together and and the fpa is an ongoing member of that group um it's the the working title being the building safety alliance so what we're trying to do as an organization kind of in parallel with the PAS development is the the development of an operational scheme that could actually uh, enable people to then demonstrate that they have been proven competent. In the meantime, people very often ask, oh, isn't there a course that I can follow uh, that I can just, you know, be upskilled with? And, And those are things that are in the pipeline. You know, there are Um, courses being developed that might plug a person's competence gap and there are full-on qualifications that are being developed at the moment they won't be finished really until the PAS is properly finished because that will set out kind of what what the BSM will be expected to do so there is that difficulty for people to really oh what, what can I actually do because that's what they want to know now so really 
a lot of the upskilling now uh, that people can do is just awareness, understanding, filling any gaps that they may have on, on fire safety, awareness, understanding fire structures, fire strategy, etc. But the, the important point, actually, where we are going to in the pathway is that it's not just going to be qualifications based, because really competence the, the model that's going to be used within the legislation is skills, knowledge, experience and behaviours because of all the important elements that they've got. And you don't necessarily prove that by undertaking a qualification. So there, there will need to be independent assessment of someone meeting all of the requirements of the PAS by an independent organisation. So do you think that will lead to um, registration? for building safety managers the same way as we um well we already have that within the um within the fire risk assessment sector but that's being you know that's being strengthened and um and developed as we speak yeah it it will not be a requirement as such so the regulator will hold a register of any building safety manager that is basically on the building safety certificate. Uh, so they will know who all the building safety managers are that have been appointed to the buildings, but they will not have a register that you can just access to find out, well, if I've got a building and I, I need a building manager, where can I get one? Um, and that's basically the what the Building Safety Alliance will do. So we'll certify people um, and then we'll also hold the register and uh, we've got quite a broad uh, alliance of support for that. The reason why we wanted to have a register or actually saw it as quite a necessary piece is how can you rely on people be genuinely competent? You, you need to validate that and then you need to find those people in a particular place. And a register would really help accountable persons to find the right people. It will also give some assurance to residents that could check if someone on that register that they're genuinely competent. Um, because ultimately, we have to remind ourselves that this is about safe homes. So we really have got to reassure those um, residents that we're not just saying they're safe, they are genuinely safe, and the people are genuinely competent. But the other reason is that if you have a register, it will also make it much easier for the accountable person to understand that anyone on that register is genuinely uh, competent because it will be their proof of burden to the regulator that this person is really competent. So it, it will make it easier for them to have a system in place that really that checks and certifies that these people are competent and that there is an easy place for it to find. It mirrors very closely the, you know, as I mentioned earlier, the work that goes on in uh, that's going on within working group four, for you know, competence of um, of fire risk assessors, and and clearly also chimes um, very strongly with your your very early comments about the the issues that you identified right at the very start of the process that you were going through in terms of the standard of fire risk assessment, and you know, our our experience is is exactly the same. There is a a massive variation in in the standards of fire risk assessments that. Uh, that we come across in the course of our work um, and I think that the the certification and registration of fire risk assessors and building safety managers goes a long long way to ensuring that we do have competent people in, 
place and and those accountable persons as you mentioned are in a position to be able to appoint people that they can um, you know they can have some reliance on the risk assessment point just sort of brings me on to the next question those that are responsible for fire safety have to do a whole range of different things and 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 one of those is ensuring a suitable and sufficient fire risk assessment for the premises and um and that that is maintained and Hackett made it very clear that if recommendations are made they need to be they need to be followed up on but for building safety managers alongside of of ensuring that the the outcomes of the fire risk assessment and the recommendations are actually applied they've got to do other things routine maintenance making sure that's undertaken effectively and and recorded so that will clearly be a you know another facet to their role albeit very much aligned with the risk assessment and the you know the the, the building safety these podcasts were started on the on on in support of a a campaign that FPA are running called Know Your Building, um, and I just wondered what your thoughts were. You did mention earlier um, building safety managers understanding the building structure, but yeah, you know, to say, I just wonder how important you feel it is that the building safety manager does have a good understanding of the of the building in the round um, to enable them to do their role effectively. Well, I'd, I'd say it couldn't be more important. You can't manage the risks without understanding them. You can't understand. You need to really understand how the building is built and how the, the fabric of the building is helping to prevent fire. Um, so it it couldn't be more important. That's why it's part of, of the whole competence requirements, you know, understanding and applying, appraising the basic principle of protection of life safety, um, understanding um, compartmentation, uh, impacts of of causes of failure to life safety system, all all of that needs to be understood. And that when you you start tinkering with something, that, that obviously has got consequences down the line. So that is very important. And of course, competence is the one thing. The other thing is is having that availability of, of information um, is another. And, and that's we've already touched upon that slightly. That's quite a challenge in a lot of buildings, especially those built before the digital world, which is why, you know, a lot of type four assessments have been taken place, which then possibly kind of lifts the the sheet on on the whole host of problems that might be going on in a building and and you can't unsee that no. you need to deal with that absolutely you can't no and and your reflections on on several aspects there I, th- I think were were really interesting we did we did some research um at the start of this campaign asking um asking our members just how much they understood about their building and, and we were really surprised at the response because you know we clearly understand that in order to manage fire risk properly you've got to understand what you've got but it seemed that for a a significant um percentage of 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 those respondents um, that wasn't actually the case. They didn't really have that level of detail that they needed. I was thinking a little bit um, about the the issues associated with information um, as you were talking, and uh, and the proposals from from Hackett in terms of providing information through BIM modelling. But that raises some concerns for me, I suppose, because I'm not sure how accessible that kind of information will be to facilities managers. Is that, is, is that something that they're familiar with and work with on a regular basis? Or do we really need to be looking to provide information in a, in a different format to support them? Oh, well, how long is a piece of string? Um, 
it is something that we've worked on for quite some some time and and obviously bim is enormously important and i think that's definitely what the future remains i mean we already knew it was the future it remains the challenge is to make sure that we can bring everyone along with that um and that's not necessarily just the the input of the facilities manager that's needed that's the client's understanding as well about why all that is needed so it's not going to be easy and i think all of the requirements around golden thread and safety case and safety case reports will need to be manageable in an analog world to begin with because we need to make as i said we need to make sure that we can bring everyone along but it should definitely be an encouragement that we make that transition as standard um i know that government is obviously keen to well potentially mandate some some digital aspects and we would very much welcome that um and and the technology is there to convert uh analog information into digital so it's there but again i think one of the things we couldn't predict before this pandemic and at the onset of onset of trying to remediate for the future any loss of life when it comes to life safety is the pandemic and the impact that that's having on budgets and resources do you think that impacts as well with the i suppose the for some time anyway for the for the future um increasing flexibility for people to work from home um you know covid has certainly driven a um you know driven most of us to spend an awful lot of time working from home and find effective ways of communicating and um and and ensuring that our roles are undertaken successfully do you think that that will be a continuing challenge for those in the uh, in the building safety manager or fm roles Funnily enough, I don't think that's necessarily the issue. I think there's an opportunity there because I don't think the flexibility of working from home is necessarily keeping building managers away from the building more. I think initially when we first had a first lockdown there there was an uncertainty about what could be done and can we go into the buildings and obviously that was something that needed to be pointed out and greater clarity was asked from the government about no these people need to go into buildings to keep on checking on things but i i think actually in a way the the working away from buildings and the working from home has made a lot of people including building managers and fms reliant on technology and supporting technology of colleagues as well to to enable them to work away and therefore i think the advance of technology is is has been advanced much faster possibly than without the pandemic because people are much more comfortable with technology we're doing podcasts away from each other and and we're not feeling weird about that anymore um we do virtual meetings etc so i think what actually it's doing it's made technology much more accessible as an enabler and that should find its way in the way that people manage buildings because they can rely on that technology to do it remotely if something goes wrong ping ping they they can get it all sorted they don't necessarily need to be in the building i mean there's other reasons why they should have a close relationship with the building but but i think it it might actually lower that 
technological threshold that might exist in certain areas of the sector. Mm. Yeah, and and clearly some of those issues we've been talking about in terms of, of competence and uh, and all of those facets of competence brought into play are really going to assist people to be able to work more effectively um, in, a, in, a, in a remote way. But we, we touched upon in that respect the certification of uh, and, and registration of fire risk assessors and the building safety manager. But do you think that's something that, that needs to be um, or needs to become mandatory for all of those undertaking fire safety work? Oh, that's, a, that's a very hotly debated issue. I've been uh, part of the uh, BSI Flex uh, advisory group and it's it's very much debated at the moment. So very topical. I, I do think that independent, uniform third-party assessment is key to people being held to the same standard. Um, and also because competences is, is so much more than knowledge from qualifications, we've already discussed that, I, I do think it's appropriate to, to bring it beyond qualifications. So really assessing skills, experience, behaviours. I think possibly third-party accredited certification or assessment processes like you see um, as an endpoint assessment in apprenticeships are, are probably the best approach just to make sure because one of the reasons probably being is that what we see in the market is that there's such a difference in quality as well with the qualifications that are uh, delivered. Therefore, qualifications in themselves, you know, they need to be on, on the registered qualifications framework, etc. But how do people distinguish between that? Because it's very difficult for them to, to really understand what quality provision is. Obviously, professional bodies such as ourselves have to advocate the merits of that and, and raise that awareness around that. But yeah, that's where the third party accreditation does give a bit more of a of that advantage of that uniform playing field. Yeah, sure, and and you're absolutely right in in terms of advocating for the for the right approach and having effective qualifications. You know, we 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 as an organisation look from time to time at uh, of course what other other organisations similar to ourselves in the training market are doing, um, and we know that some organisations will sell you a a 90 pound course that they will claim will make you competent to undertake fire risk assessments when you know nothing nothing could be further from the truth and and, and I'm sure you see the same in you know well absolutely I mean we've got our own awarding organization so we need to deliver against quality I mean so for, for us we've we have not seen the need to do third party accreditation ourselves uh, because we know that whenever we do something it's going to be quality but what we do see, for example, in the FM apprenticeship market is that people that don't necessarily follow quality um, qualifications, they will not pass their endpoint assessment. So it's there needs to be a means of distinction and participating in upskilling within recognised professional bodies obviously helps with that. As an anecdote... We saw some recruiters the other day um, advertise that they could upskill people to then kind of advocate that they would be competent BSMs. You know, that's the kind of thing that we want to 
issue or warn against? One last question, if I if I may. We've talked about working group eight and the, the role that the Institute has played in, in developing competence requirements. Um, how do we ensure that the outcomes of all of that work that's gone on gone in within that working group are actually implemented? Are, are, are there are there still more challenges and still more hurdles to overcome or or is the pathway that you described earlier setting a, a path that um, is is easily achievable, do you think? Yes, I think it is, especially when we have the Building Safety Alliance as a vehicle to really operationalize that. And it, I mentioned before that it had the white support. It really does have white support. If, if you look at the membership of that, then um, we've got National Housing Federation, British Property Federation, ARMA, IRPM, us, of course, quite a few of the big managing agents are supporting it, LGA will be part, and HSC and MHCLG are going to be attending as observers. So I do think that that is the pathway towards operationalizing the WG8 framework. And I I really hope that that will be a success. But as far as I can see, that is the only thing that would really give that clarity of having a very specific route that has also got wide support across the industry. And that will then in turn really work towards those outcomes of ensuring safe homes for people because it gives that confidence, it gives that assurance. Clearly with the buy-in that you've been able to establish um within the alliance um, is is going to go some way to achieving that. You know, the more people that are singing off the same hymn sheet, um, you know, the far better the outcome is likely to be. Sophie, thank you so much for taking some time out to uh, to speak with us today and for sharing your insights um, on the importance of knowing your building from a fire safety standpoint and 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 also the the insight you've been able to give us into the work of, of working group eight what the institute does and what the future may look like or we hope will look like going forward for for those involved in managing safety in buildings it's been a it's been a really interesting discussion which i've thoroughly enjoyed so thank you very much indeed again Thank you very much for having me. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Uh, To make sure you don't miss out on future episodes, please hit the subscribe button and leave us a review. Thank you for listening to the FPA's Assembly Point podcast, created as part of our Know Your Building campaign. To hear more episodes or for more information and resources on Know Your Building, which is helping building owners and managers reduce the risk of fire, please visit www.thefpa.co.uk and search Know Your Building.